A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 102 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.StarWarsReport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on your own Facebook page, at SWBeyondFilms. But enough about how you got here, let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman, and with me like a Wookiee with a life debt, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hello, everyone. How you doing? As if you could answer a podcast. It's cold where I'm at. It is uh, snowing really hard outside. I posted some pictures of uh, Echo Base that we've been building in the front yard. It's like seven degrees right now. I'm chittering pretty good. <laughs> What's the weather like over there on the east? <laughs> oh, here it's not too bad. It's a little chilly and it's rainy and that's about it. Put it this way. While my uh, stepmother back in Indiana was posting pictures of their veterinary office, with like six inches of snow on the ground uh, within a very, very short amount of time. Uh, we were walking around in t-shirts and thinking, maybe maybe we don't even need the long pants today kind of weather. So uh, yeah, Atlanta's a little bit insulated from the blast, but we get the rain when everybody else gets the snow. Ah, yes. That's See, that's normally us. When they said we were going to get six inches plus of snow, I was the naysayer. I was like, yeah, right. I wish. I hope for and then it came. <laughs> well, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we look at 2013's gear and review for the novels. Consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go. That's right, there's a ton of stuff to talk about for this year, so we're going to break it up the way that we have done in the past. We have uh, books this time around have comics next time around, and then we have sort of an other category and a video category, which will probably be ones that we can sort of mesh together and make a third episode out of it as opposed to breaking it up into four. I guess it just kind of depends on how long we go on each individual topic. In this case, for the books, we've got, and I've tried to compile as as comprehensive of a list as I could. If we miss something, surely someone will mention it on Facebook and we can work it into the end of our other episode. But basically, I've broken this down into books that were entirely new releases, uh, ignoring, you know, little kitty books and stuff like that, but books that were entirely new releases, so adult novels and such for the most part. Um, deluxe releases, things like in the past uh, Jedi Path, where you get a lot of uh, extra goodies with it, some extreme release of something that's probably going to be released in a more subdued form later. 
We have paperback re-releases, which are basically just the mass market paperback releases of things that were already released in hardback some time ago. We have insider fiction, which granted is not by itself something that's published separately, but those short stories that show up in the pages of Star Wars Insider, uh, when they are doing short stories as opposed to excerpts from uh, upcoming books and such. Then we have the in-canon stuff, uh, in, not I-N, but in as in non-canon, that level of canon within the holocron and such. Things that aren't canonical Star Wars stories, but at the same time, they are licensed Star Wars products. They're not official continuity, but they're expanded universe, uh, to use the terminology there. And um, then we have the non-fiction stuff, the stuff that is about Star Wars, per se, instead of being Star Wars stories themselves. So quite a few different uh, categories when it comes to books here, and I guess when we talk about insider fiction, uh, we can also possibly talk in a little bit about the Clone Wars magazine in the U.S. Indeed. Actually, you know, I'm surprised by the list. You know, each year when you get to the list, you're like, wow, there was really that many novels that came out? Because as you're reading them one at a time, it seems so few and far between. I, I know that there have been times where I've said, hey, that's a good thing, and I've said that's a bad thing. Um, it really comes down to your fandom, how fast you're reading, I think. I mean, if you're just gobbling this stuff up as quick as you can get it, you're going to be wanting more no matter what. But if you're a slow reader or if you got things going on that's causing you to slow it down or you like to go back and reread a book, I can see why having a whole bunch of them come out in one year could be a little overwhelming. But I don't know. I think we got a good rundown here of, of the year. I know there's a couple here that I didn't get that I really want to get, the Bounty Hunter Code especially. I don't know. What are, what are some of your top choices off this list, Nate? And I'm looking at the list, and I'm thinking, wow, there were quite a few releases this year, but it doesn't necessarily make it the best of years. This was a really mixed bag of a year when it came to Star Wars books. We've had some really good stuff, some meh stuff, uh, and other things that are just kind of like, you know, take it or leave it, for lack of a better term. Um, and a couple that are just sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not bad, per se, um, but certainly not good stuff that just you wonder why on earth did this get written how is it being being released in 2013 as opposed to being released in the early days of star wars where anything went and you didn't need to have something that was of higher quality um but no i would say probably top ones on the list for me um i would say for the first time since del rey got star wars books uh, back again i would say scoundrels by timothy zahn finally a timothy zahn novel that is worth picking up since uh, Vision of the Future. Uh, definitely Kenobi. Uh, probably the Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void novel, um, because I would definitely recommend picking up the comics, and it's a good supplement to go with the comics. Uh, Bounty Hunter Code is pretty cool, although I have not taken the time to go through and read the entire thing yet. Um, I've, I've just kind of played around with it a little bit. Um, and of all things, I would recommend one of the in-canon things, uh, William Shakespeare's Star Wars for this year, if you are someone... Uh, who likes reading Shakespeare's works uh, and is also, of course, a fan of Star Wars. I'm not sure that someone who's not a big fan, if you want to call it that, of things like Hamlet are going to really get much out of that one. It's sort of one of those things you got to be particularly familiar with some of Shakespeare's works in the first place before that one will play out well. Otherwise, you'll read it and it'll just be a slog. But I liked it. Verily, you say it was good. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. That is, uh, there's a couple of fluff and fillers on this list. Uh, you know, what the other one that stands out for me is, of course, Kenobi, just an absolute gem. Uh, so let's just go ahead and run down this list. Um, you know, let's uh, let's just jump right in. I mean, Darth Maul Shadow Conspiracy. That was an adaptation by uh, Jason Fry. I I uh, I thought it was pretty cool. I like the adaptations. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I remember when I first got into the Clone Wars, you know, and they had these adaptations and stuff out there. I thought they were kind of like a waste of time, but then I started to look at it in a different light. And I mean, you know, from the EU standpoint, this is why the Clone Wars falls into the EU. You've got these books, and anytime you have these adaptations, you know, there you go. You've got that avenue into the EU. So it's cool that, you know, Jason Fry takes little moments and he, he slips in a little extra details here and there. And and those are the things that, that make these things worth getting for me. Uh, you know, it wasn't like an essential read or anything, but it definitely was a fun ride and it added to what was going on with uh, the lawless and all that with the Clone Wars in season five. Yeah, I thought it was cool. He has a tendency to try to add depth to what we're seeing on screen. I mean, I loved that arc of the Clone Wars anyway, the one that starts technically with Revival, even though they decided to kick off the season with it and show it out of order, thankfully the complete season set and the uh, seasons one through five set actually put it back in the correct order, um, but right, Revival, uh, Eminence, Shades of Reason, which is probably my favorite episode, uh, or Lawless, you know, those two kind of go back and forth as to which one is my favorite episode, but just the idea that he went and took some of the concepts in there, like, for instance, the name Shadow Collective, um, the shadow conspiracy of all these different groups that have come together. I don't think that term hit print outside of his book, uh, except in The Last Jedi. So it's one of those cool things to finally have a name for this organization that Maul is building, so you don't have to keep saying, uh, Darth Maul's, you know, political organization, or his criminal organization, his underworld organization. No, you can actually just say, Shadow Collective, and people will finally know what you're talking about, thanks to uh, Jason's novelization, or whatever you want to call it. I'm not sure. I mean, it's basically a novelization. It's an adaptation. The the episodes are T-canon. Anything added to this that wasn't actually part of the episode, presumably, would be C-canon. Um, but it is nice to see this adding some depth to it for those following the official continuity. Oh, yeah, and you no longer have to hear Maldalorians. I mean, I, that is a cool title and all. I, and I think for me, you know, that the story, that was one of the cool aspects was seeing the uh, Maul-styled Mandalorian armor, how they were kind of all, uh, you know, in, imitating him in that regard. Uh, you know, when that those images first hit the Internet, I was like, oh, what's this? You know, and I think that was kind of like a missed opportunity there for the toys and stuff. Like, you, you could have really marketed the heck out of some of them episodes. You know, look at the Night Sisters and stuff. I must admit here that when you said Maul-Deloreans... I've never heard that phrase before to refer to the Mandalorians when run by Maul. So when you said Maul-Delorians, I pictured Darth Maul standing in front of a big silver car saying, 88 miles per hour! Or something. Who you call a chicken? <laughs> when nice. this baby hits nice. 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious Sith. Nice. Now, you mentioned it earlier, uh, Timothy Zahn, he was back writing Scoundrels. Uh, this is one that me and you kind of divided on. Um, you know, it is out also in paperback at this point, um, which is good for me because I like having it on my bookshelf. But, you know, I, I, I don't know. For me, this is like one of those where I realized that, you know, as much as I love Timothy Zahn, I'm not such a fan of his earlier style. Like, you know, I'd, I'd forgotten how hard it was for me to get through his earlier books, whereas, you know, the ones that you didn't like, I actually just gobbled those ones up. So, I don't know. Like, it made me stop and kind of – I'm going to take a step back from my fandom and go, you know, as, as awesome as Timothy Zahn is and stuff, I'm actually not in that camp of – I just see rainbows and Candyland sparkles and everything he does. And for me, I don't know. I, I'm a big, huge, huge fan of the Ocean's Eleven franchise and stuff. And so I was really looking forward to that idea. And while I get where, you know, they, they they draw on that from, it didn't feel Ocean's Eleven enough for me to enjoy the book. And by the time we got to the end with the rolling safe and everything, it just seemed really, I don't know, comedian. 
like I don't know. It was it was way too comedic for my likes. And see, like I said, I'm sort of the opposite. I really, really enjoyed the Thrawn trilogy. It's one of my favorite Star Wars novels or novel trilogies ever. Um, just actually covered uh, the first episode or the first novel of it in an episode of From the Star Wars Library. Yes, From the Star Wars Library is finally back on YouTube and such. Um, so now that I'm getting into the 90s. Just took a look at that and uh, recorded for Dark Force Rising and such. And it's just it's it's cool to look back at those because I remember them so fondly. And the Hand of Thrawn duology is kind of the same thing. I really like the whole political intrigue aspect of it and whatnot added into things. There's always sort of a level of mystery to go with it. When they moved to Del Rey, though, it always kind of felt to me like they were trading on his name and his recognition as being the guy who wrote the Thrawn trilogy rather than expecting him to turn in something that was really of the same high quality of what he did in the Bantam era. Uh, was not a big fan of Allegiance, of Choices of One, of Outbound Flight, of Survivor's Quest. Um, which ironically was the first book that I ever got signed from, but I don't think it should probably exist anymore now that outbound flights out there. Um, so I was really not looking forward to Scoundrels. Like, oh great, you know, it's a classic trilogy era novel. It's going to be Han and Chewie and some others. Oh look, they're somehow throwing Lando into the mix. This is going to be a train wreck if it's anything like the quality of his last few books. I was pleasantly surprised though. Uh, it worked very well as, you know, a crime caper. They captured Han well, captured the others well, gave them some depth. Uh, yeah, I think the rolling safe thing was a little bit goofy. I think that was just meant to be an homage to Raiders of the Lost Ark that was added in there. Uh, and it really did sort of feel like an Ocean's Eleven type feel. Um, in fact, I, I found myself a lot of times while reading it kind of humming to myself because I was a fan at one point of the early Frank Sinatra, you know, way back version of Ocean's Eleven, the very first one, I kept thinking, EO Eleven, which would make for a great, you know, droid name. I'm surprised there wasn't a droid named EO Eleven in the book. That would have been perfect. <laughs> that would have been a cool little twist. Now, next on our list is The Last Jedi by Michael Reeves and Maya Catherine Bonhoff. That one, I, you know, that one surprised me. I wasn't expecting a book that I would enjoy, and I actually did, especially the last half of the book. Uh, the whole aspect of the Sith holocron, what was going on with Jax Pavan, I-5 especially. Uh, you know, I, I thought it was a really good tale. I look at it a little beyond just what Michael Reeves has been doing, though. I go back all the way to the Darth Maul uh, saboteur in those books where I-5 story kind of goes and goes all the way through the Med Star series. I think if you're following I-5, you're going to get the most out of this series. Um, that, for me, was, was really cool. I'm kind of hoping and looking forward to seeing more about what's going to happen with I-5, but at the same time, The Last Jedi left it at a good spot where they could just end those characters' stories right there if we never go back. It's a better satisfactory conclusion than some of Dark Horse Comics Invasion comics. Ah, see, that was what was just that was on the tip of my tongue. The idea of a uh, yeah, satisfactory conclusion. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I like the story of I five. You know, whether we're talking Shadowhunter, we're talking about uh, Med Star books and that sort of thing. I mean, he's never been the most compelling of characters because he always seems like that weird anomaly, the the somehow quasi sentient droid that senses the Force kind of stuff or is connected within the Force. Um, I do think the Last Jedi made for a solid ending albeit a little bit bloated, uh, a solid ending for the Coruscant Knights stuff. So now we don't need to return to Coruscant Knights and, and its characters. It's done. We have a nice, solid ending for that. And now Jax and I-5 can show up in some other stories set later and uh, maybe be a bit part type of character. We don't need more to their story now that this is pretty much wrapped up most of the elements of the storyline there. I would only wish 
that they would at some point in a later printing go back to some of the earlier books within Coruscant Nights that are officially Coruscant Nights as opposed to this one that's kind of an unofficial um, intended sequel to it or end camp to it and fix some of the many errors that were involved. This one um, certainly a lot stronger than the previous ones when it comes to um, just being able to play out without a lot of stumbling blocks. I like the philosophy. I mean, again, that Sith holocron, once they got into that and Jack started really messing with the powers, the way it was described, uh, you know, they, they kind of go into his mind and he's looking around and at first he sees these lights kind of start to appear. And then next thing he notices that those lights are actually uh, he's standing inside the Jedi library and it's all just you know, data and scrolls and you name it, just all just information that his brain is associating through the Jedi Temple. And as he walks up to these different scrolls and stuff, he'll lift one up and it'll be like the the art of firebending, you know, for a loose example, and it'll just absorb into his hand and all of a sudden he's got that power. Uh, you know, the way that they played with that was epic. I just, I I loved it. I would love to see, you know, some other people maybe play with that style of, of learning or something. Oh, it was, I was brilliant. I just... That part alone made the book a worth it read for me. Um, moving on from there, we got Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void by Tim Libon. Uh, his first foray into the Star Wars Expanded Universe and uh, the first novelization set so far back in the past that we've got uh, a different dating system. Although, for those of you wondering, it's like, what, 25 thousand or 25 million years uh, bby I'm not really sure on that one nathan that's more your uh, cup of tea but it was an interesting read one of the things i really enjoyed though was, was seeing the dawn of the jedi you know the what was the jedi order before it was jedi you know seeing sith in the ranks of these jedi and, and they're not bad and and what that looked like i mean this is the closest i got to that reboot feel you know while staying in universe and going farthest back in novel form you know it's a great little company piece to the dawn of the jedi comics kind of sets it up gives you an idea of what's going on with the flavor of the universe there or the galaxy it, it felt like it was like its own galaxy the way it was set off in the core the way it was but i thought it worked it played well i definitely want to read if you're reading the dawn of the jedi comics uh, it's one of those that um, does a lot of good world building. We talked about it recently, of course, on an episode here. Um, just bear in mind that the little preview comic inside of it isn't from Prisoner of Bogan number one. It's from Prisoner of Bogan number two, despite what it says. Also, um, <laughs> I swear it, it feels like this is happening constantly. Another update on the chronology of Dawn of the Jedi. Um, a while back, I had uh, noticed that over and over again, in the Dawn of the Jedi comics, they could not seem to get the dates on the inside credit page correct. So with the first storyline, right, Force Storm, it starts with this sort of, not really flashback, but way back in the past, 3,000, or excuse me, 36,453 years BBY. And then eventually it jumps forward and gets to the main storyline. But then every subsequent issue gave the date of the story as the date for those early segments, not for the main story. And then you get the second arc, Prisoner of Bogan, and it just says, the events of the story take place over 36,000 years before A New Hope, which they don't, because they're about 10,000 years off. And then the same thing happened basically in the first issue of Force War when it came out, which is the only one at this point that is out as of the time that we're recording this. So I asked Jen Dersima about it. I basically said, look... um, uh, I've noticed that the dates aren't correct. Um, they're off, and they've been off in every single issue. It's like they're repeating the same mistake. Uh, any chance of this getting fixed? And Do you know why it's doing it? That sort of thing. And her answer essentially was that as far as she knew, 
the idea was that they were going to keep updating the date in it with the subsequent issues and the subsequent story arcs so that everybody know when it takes place, but it seems like that hasn't happened, so she was going to mention it to Dark Horse. I took it upon myself to happen to also mention this to Leland Chi at one point, and his response back basically said, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll have him look into it, whatever, and uh, by the way, just for clarity's sake, uh, Force War is set in 25,792 BBY. Which had me go, what? Because as you may recall, back uh, a little while ago, there was an issue with Into the Void. Into the Void, uh, if you look on the inside timeline, and if you look at where everybody seems to have thought, and most websites still uh, note, Dawn of the Jedi's first arc, Force Storm, which is concurrent with Into the Void, at least in part, was supposed to take place in 25,793 BBY. But then when the dates, when you start translating them over in, into the void, stopped making sense because they've got dates for Dalian Brock's um, journals that basically are being written uh, as if they were nine years before the story, except they're being dated a year after the story, after the character doesn't even exist anymore. Uh, those dates didn't seem to make sense. And I brought it up to him a while back, and he said, yeah, apparently the, the, the date for... Uh, into the Void, and therefore the date for Force Storm and Prisoner of Boggan is 25,783 BBY. It was a decade off, a decade later, than what we thought it was. But if Force Storm is a year after that, that should make Force Storm 25,782, not 92 BBY. And I was like, uh, wait a second. So are you saying that the dates have been moved back into the 90s as opposed to into the 80s? What's the deal with it? And it's like, oh, well, wait a second. And uh, I checked with Jan as far as, like, what was the, the intent and everything, went back and forth. She basically said she's going to leave it up to, you know, that they are leaving it up to Leland to, to set what the official date is, blah, blah, blah. And he essentially said, yeah, you know, we're going to stick with the, the date as intended, which apparently was in the 80s. So still, most fan sites at this point, because it's never been stated in public, have the wrong date for the first Dawn of the Jedi stories. And because it's just set a year later, apparently now the wrong date for the third arc of Dawn of the Jedi. So they're all out there with incorrect information because it has not been stated in public. And we're going to have to wait until they finally fix the dates on the inside credits page of the Dawn of the Jedi comics, probably, before anybody realizes what the date is supposed to be. Unless, of course, they read the Star Wars timeline goal. So, suffice to say, uh, despite the fact that there is a different date on the timeline right inside the beginning of Into the Void, um, since Into the Void is the one that messes everything up anyway and caused the uh, confusion. Uh, if you just kind of break it down, it's Eruption, Into the Void, Force Storm, and Prisoner of Boggan are all in 25,783, not 93 BBY. And then Force Storm is one year later, 25,782, not 92 BBY. I'm hoping that very soon they'll start showing that on the inside covers of the comic issues. I mean, heck, at this point, if they turn it back and just say the dates for Delian Brock's journals were wrong, I'd be fine with that, as long as we finally have something officially out there giving a date, because the date on the timeline from Del Rey, uh, they've already said before that you can think of the dates listed on there as sort of like barriers, as like marks we're moving past, not necessarily the name of that given year, but a time marker. Um, so. At this point, we can't really take that uh, at face value, which apparently is obvious given the fact that the dates are 10 years later than everybody originally thought.
great stories, but man, I wish that the timeline thing could just be sorted out easily and just done with, you know? Absolutely. I, I just remember it being the same type of issue with the uh, tour, the, the Old Republic game era when the books started coming out with Annihilation and stuff in the comics, uh, you know, not having the date set in on that either. It was kind of like they just went into it. Well, we'll just figure it out as we go. Seems like a really bad idea to me. Yeah, just a little weird why that would even be an issue. I would have thought it would have been pinned down before, but maybe that's the thing. Maybe it was pinned down before, but the wrong assumption was made, I guess, about the date or something at some point, and now it's kind of stuck since then. Uh, the next book that we have is Crucible by Troy Denning. This, of course, is supposedly the final major adventure of the big three, Luke, Leia, and Han. Um, had that weird storyline with the the illicit corporation and its super, super brainy Kalamai operators who wanted to get revenge on Han for their mama's death oh so long ago that they couldn't even really prove was Han. A very strange story, um, which also brought in elements of the Mortis style and uh, Thoyor style monoliths and such. Uh, a decent Star Wars book. I'm not sure if it was necessarily the best way to wrap up things for the big three, um, certainly a weird Star Wars book, and we spent an episode focusing on it a while back. I liken this one to a begrudging ending. Uh, you know, it's an ending that you knew was coming, but it didn't quite taste well. Um, yeah, as a big three swan song, I get where they were going with that, but if this is going to be the end piece of our EU, I think it was a failure. You know, I, I've said it in our one episode that, you know, you've got the Ten Knights, you've got the the aspect of Abolith and things like that that were just never touched on, still out there, still wide open. All we really saw was Han, Luke, Leia just get brutalized, beat up, poked, prodded, and so forth. And, and then we had this weird, crazy orgy of forceness at the end that was just like what did i just read uh i don't know i i there was so much i had pinned on this one for hopes and stuff and and you know troy denning i i love his stuff but it wasn't a book that i was enjoying and and it fell victim to denning's one issue that i have with him and it just had a weak ending uh you know and, and if this is going to be an end piece to our eu weak ending is not how i want to go out the next book, though, was one of our favorites of the year, Kenobi by John Jackson Miller, which I gotta say, it was it was not quite what I expected. I'm not sure what I was expecting. I was not expecting essentially a story that felt like a Western um, that focused mostly on characters other than Obi-Wan. He was kind of like a, not a secondary character, but he certainly wasn't one that we focused on very much. He was kind of the stranger making his way into town while we focused on the other characters. And while it doesn't seem to have much of an impact on a whole lot, um, outside of just here's how Kenobi settled in on Tatooine. It was a very enjoyable story with those characters that we were just being introduced to who we'll probably never see again. Um, it, it's it's that odd thing. It's almost a throwaway story in my terminology that I usually use, and yet at the same time, probably the single best Star Wars novel of 2013. And it's funny how, you know, we mentioned it being like a throwaway in that regard because, yeah, it does feel like the next book we're about to discuss in that regard that it, it didn't affect anybody profoundly in the universe and it only mildly affected the one character we know of being Kenobi. I really enjoyed the aspect of the sand people, uh, the way they played that back and forth between the settlers, the sand people, kind of like the, uh, 
you know, the, the Native Americans and the early settler feel of those early Indian wars and stuff. I, I don't know. I, I found it drew me in in ways that I wasn't expecting, and I really enjoyed it for everything it was. Uh, you know, John Jackson Miller has always impressed me, and the twist on it was great. I wasn't expecting the Western, and then when, when I did see that, that that was, was the flavor we were going to be getting, uh, it, it, it played well. I mean, you know, we had the Bantha chase and stuff. I could totally envision this being a Western, like a, an episode of Bonanza almost. Which brings us to the aforementioned one that was pretty much a throwaway story. That was Empire and Rebellion Razor's Edge by Martha Wells. And I find it amusing, you know, we, I sort of said my piece on this, I'll mention it here in a second, though, for those who uh, want to hear it as part of our wrap-up, but it was funny, Mark had posted on our Facebook page uh, asking, has anyone else had a problem getting into Razor's Edge? I think I'd be more into it if it was just totally random characters. And nobody who responded to that had a positive thing to say about Razor's Edge. Uh, Scott Hume said, uh, I had a hard time with it and really wanted to like it, and then asked when we're going to talk about it on the show. We're talking about it here. We'll probably talk about it in a later episode in depth. Um, uh, George, is it Hotlaner? I think is, is how you pronounce it. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Uh, it says, the book is a drag. Really boring. Jason Latronica says, I was extremely disappointed in the book. Uh, John Phillips, bought the audio, gave up after two discs. May go back someday, and so on, and so on. Nobody seems to have been able to get into this, which again is sort of those, why was this published? This is a book focusing on Leia that gives no added characterization to Leia outside of the way that she was in A New Hope, adds nothing to Han beyond the way he was in A New Hope at this point. Um, it's leading up to the events of The Empire Strikes Back. It ties into nothing, makes almost no continuity references whatsoever. The few that it does do are iffy at best, has some errors in there that didn't get fixed. I had emailed uh, Del Rey about them, but my guess is it was way too far in the editing process for them to go back and fix them. Like things like uh, star lines being seen as you're zipping through hyperspace and whatnot, and Leia referring to a story of Senator Palpatine's days that sounds like she's relating it from her time in the Senate when that was way after he'd already become Supreme Chancellor and then Emperor and so on and so on and so on. Um, but it's a story that is so continuity inoffensive and ties into so little and develops pretty much nothing and creates these flimsy, very thin characters whose names, at this point, I can't even remember without looking. Um, uh, basically, it just creates a story that might as well have been written in the time of Brian Daly's Han Solo adventures, of uh, L. Neil Smith's uh, Lando Carisian adventures, of Splinter of the Mind's Eye, the first time Delray had the license, back when Star Wars wasn't really much of a continuity, and the books that came out were basically inoffensive fluff. But even then... You can see stories and characters from the Daly and Smith novels and from Splinter of the Mind's Eye being added onto and developed later. I don't see the potential with this. This really did feel like a story that didn't need to exist for a full-priced hardback price. And we've got two more in Empire Rebellion coming. Hopefully, the fact that they're by different authors means that these other authors might be more prone to at least doing something that matters and tying it into something in the continuity. Um, Razor's Edge is not a bad book per se, but it's not a book that feels like it should have existed, and it certainly is not a good book. Well, it's interesting because there are two more books coming, and yet in the timeline it shows the next one, The uh, Honor of Thieves or whatever that one's called, they're showing it as being before Razor's Edge. 
which has me kind of scratching my head. Are these supposed to be an actual trilogy of books or Mm -hmm. just calling them three books? I mean, that's why are we even calling this a trilogy? Why are they even the same title if they have nothing to do with each other? And I'm getting that impression that they have nothing to do with each other. It reminds me of the uh, Jedi comic series back when they were uh, when Dark Horse was first developing. Dark Horse and Del Rey were first developing the Clone Wars era prior to the cartoon series. Um, it's one shots as far as the stories go, but because they're of a similar approach, they're being given that Empire and Rebellion title over the top of them. I don't see, I don't expect anything within these three books to tie into each other at all. I'm hoping. The approach they're taking isn't the let's be totally accessible and not connect to anything, let's be throwaway stories thing. But I'm kind of afraid that's the case because it's certainly the, the precedent that has been set by Empire and Rebellion uh, or uh, by Razor's Edge, the first of the Empire and Rebellion books. Yeah, that's definitely what I'm feeling. I mean, you got these Alderanian gunships and I'm interested. I, I finally got to the point where I'm interested in what's going on with them. But then I have that sneaking suspicion that and, and I feel like I know I'm right already, but they're going to go nowhere that we're never going to see these guys again. And, and that's that to me, that takes me out of everything. It's like knowing that this book has, it's a fluff and filler and that bothers me. I, I get that, you know, there are fans out there that want to see Leia in this, in this time frame, but they're not adding anything to Leia. All you're watching is just her running through the motions. And to me, it's like, you could have put any other character in there and got that, but, I don't know, the aspect from the Alderanian standpoint, that's what I'm interested in right now. You know, she's the princess, they want to know what's going on with her, but I have a feeling that that plot's going to drop off here real soon, and we're going to focus more on the pirate angle, and I just, I don't know, I, I, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm like, I'm conflicted. I want to know more, but I know there's not going to be more, so I'm kind of like, well, why do I even care, and... I want to care because it's a new book, and, you know, people are talking about how great it is, and I'm just like, I don't know, like, Am I ruined, Nathan? Has the EU ruined me for, for books that, that talk about the big three because I just don't want to go back and re rehash it? Because for me, I, I don't think that there's enough time for them to go take a leak anymore because sometimes I feel like that's the case. Like, they've, they've really just oversaturated certain aspects of it, and everybody wants that one aspect, so they're just going to keep oversaturating it, and the only way they can do that is just to constantly just... Ginsu knife the the continuity of the EU here, but we're just not going to actually address that. We're just going to keep chopping and dicing and dicing and keep giving you these accessible stories because that's what you want. And I don't know. It's like I I, I guess I guess it's the uh, the distaste of when you've fallen off the uh, the horse. You know, I'm I'm no longer the the group they're catering to. I guess and and I don't know. I just I want relative uh, relevant news stories, you know, stuff after Crucible. I want to know about that Luke and Leia. Um, you know, it, like I said when this first came out, I'd be more interested in this story if it was a we have a brand new EU. These are all new tales of Princess Leia. You know, witness what's going on and and throw that in with with Star Wars Volume Two and make this a whole new continuity where anything can happen with Princess Leia. I would be excited for that because that is new ground that is fertile territory this this to me is almost a joke i mean not that the plot is i'm still halfway through it i'm hoping it's going to be enjoyable but i I don't want stories that are just so pointless that they feel like they could just be thrown away because that is a big complaint that a lot of people have about this large eu is that a lot of these stories weren't worth the time to be made and if we're going to keep doing that only for the sake of creating big three stories that that's that's a bad call yeah, and you mentioned the rehash thing. You know, this is a story that, I mean, it rehashes, again, the whole 
Leia and how she's dealing with the destruction of Alderaan. If you take the fact that so many authors have wanted to deal with that topic, Leia comes off as absolutely uh, mentally unstable. Because she goes from being heavily emotional about it to being totally okay and at peace with it and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Granted, it's a traumatic event. You're going to have different emotions about it depending on your state of mind when it enters um, your thoughts. But holy crap! There is no through line of the way that Leia reacts to the destruction of Alderaan. Every author takes a different approach to it, and she winds up waffling back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Um, it does no service to the character of Leia to do that. Uh, if she's been okay with it uh, to a degree since months afterward, and she's dealt with the emotional impact of it then, don't give us a story set a year or two years later where she's still just as emotionally raw as she was back when we first saw her after A New Hope. It doesn't make a lot of storyline character development sense. Um, which, granted, you know, that's a danger when you have an EU where stories are being written all over the timeline, not being written consecutively. But, seriously, at this point, there should be just a list of, here are the bullet-pointed things that have been covered to death. Don't cover them again. <laughs> Um, next book, though, last book before we move into the deluxe releases, Death Star Owner's Technical Manual by Ryder Windham. We talked about this in a very recent episode, um, the follow-up to the Millennium Falcon uh, Owner's Workshop Manual. Not nearly as detailed as, say, uh, the Death Star uh, Technical Companion from West End Games. Uh, lots of cool insights into the Death Star, uh, not a lot of new continuity added to it. A cool little sort of coffee table style book though not necessarily uh, what someone would be looking for. They're looking for a source book. Think of this more as sort of an overview type of book. Very much like, say, the difference between that maybe a Clone Wars source book for an RPG and the Clone Wars episode guide and character encyclopedia that were put out. It's, it's not as deep, but it's still a cool publication. It had lots of cool information. I like that about it. Uh, the in-universe angle was an interesting twist. Again, I don't have the Millennium Falcon one. I wish I did. Uh, I think, it, it, again, it's a best served if they stick to just small tramp freighters and, and freighters and smaller ships. Uh, you know, the Death Star was just way too big. And making an owner's manual, I mean, what, were they really planning on selling this to every moth in the sectors? I mean, <laughs> I mean that's, the, that's the funniest part about the in-universe angle here. And, I mean, they even had a, a in-universe commercial where uh, Vader's given one of uh, the lieutenants or something one of the 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 guides i don't know it just it cracks me up in that regard i, I think it didn't work uh but again the information in there it, i like the information there were there were things on the city sprawl little tidbits uh when grand moth tarkin got his promo things like that that they not necessarily were new but they were presented in a light that that was more i don't know chewable for me i i really enjoyed wrapping my head around things like i, I don't know up until recently i'm still thinking that most of the the habitable places were in the center of the Death Star. I, you know, I mean, this pretty much lays it out. There is nothing really inhabitable on the inside. That most of it is just girders and support stuff for the laser and, and most of the internal workings of the drives and the engines and all that. That almost everything with people in it was on the outside skin. And that just, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the Death Star, when the book came out, I don't recall them really going into that much detail where that didn't really line up in my mind's eye where this just kind of shattered that expectation I had or that presumption I had. Uh, so I don't know. I, I found it was, it was a cool read. It was interesting. 
Um, you know, if, if you've got the money to throw at it, you know, go for it. It, it was it was definitely like you said, a coffee table read. It was it's fun to grab and peruse through and check out. It's got some tidbits and the way they present it works. But at the same time, it's not something I would like to see. Like I wouldn't want to see him to come out with a superstar destroyer one. I don't even know if I want to see him come out with a Star Destroyer one. I mean, there's a size limit here when you're dealing with the Haynes manual that I think once you get past a certain size, the credibility of calling it a owner's manual just gets stretched beyond all reason. That, of course, brings us to the deluxe releases. One big deluxe release this year, and that is the Bounty Hunter Code. So I've got mine sitting out here relatively close to the microphone. Um, it's got that Mandalorian symbol there on the uh, top of it and everything. Looks like it's a little battle scarred. Uh, front has sort of a grill with some holes in it. I'm going to press the buttons on either side of the grill. I got my little plastic access card ready. Um, so I hit it. Little middle part falls down. It's going to explode. Put the card into the little middle section and there we go. The lights are flashing here, basically showing that it's uh, uh, correctly done, or at least it's supposed to be. Now, if it would just lift up like it's supposed to, there we go. Now, the top's uh, unlocked. It's lifting up. Inside here, we have, uh, let's see. Well, first, we got instructions for how to open the thing. We have a little uh, note here on what this is from the Alliance, uh, the Alliance Forces Outer Rim Command Tatooine Patrol Incident Report, uh, talking about the Slave One and that sort of thing. Um, which is kind of neat, set shortly after the events of Return of the Jedi. Uh, before we look at the Bounty Hunter Code book, underneath it you have another book, albeit one that's a little tough to pull out of here, uh, kind of a very thin book written by Kradosk, Bosk's daddy, called Making a Killing, uh, which is sort of his uh, autobiography in a sense. You also have a Camino Saber Dart uh, right there inside the case with it, which is kind of neat. The Bounty Hunter Code book itself, uh, almost like a, uh, kind of almost like a meant to be leather bound kind of feel to it, I guess. Um, you open that sucker up, and among other things, as far as artifacts inside, you have the Imperial Space Ministry Bureau of Ships and Services Captain's Accredited License for Boba Fett. You have a wanted poster, wanted by proclamation of His Imperial Majesty Emperor Palpatine, 250,000 credit reward. Uh, pay for the capture or positive proof of death of Han Solo, Corellian smuggler, and seditionist. And it mentions a 50,000 credit reward for Chewbacca. See, Wookiees just don't get no respect. Um, you keep flipping through, eventually you run into some other things like uh, a, a Bureau of Ships and Services, a boss operating license for the Slave One. You run into an arms loadout permit for Boba Fett as well. Uh, basically, sort of his in-universe documentation, like having a car registration and whatnot. Uh, I actually have not had a chance to go through and read all of this yet. Um, it's pretty cool. It's got Boba Fett's own uh, guidebook there, the Bounty Hunter Code book. Uh, the Bounty Hunter's Guild Handbook is what the first part is. And then the last part, kind of like they did with uh, with uh, Book of Sith, where they had the different publications put together to make one big book, the front part of it is pretty much all uh, Boba Fett's Bounty Hunter's Guild guide uh, that he had that he's annotated. But then in the back, there's a Death Watch book that basically gives you the manifesto and explanation and exploration of the Death Watch in general. So this is another of these really cool sort of in-universe-based publications that, instead of just being a book, has all these cool little artifacts and stuff with it. Um, they've done a really good job with this each time around, and it seems like each time 
it's getting more and more elaborate in terms of the case. Although I, I do think, just looking back and thinking about the Book of Sith, it seems like the number of artifacts seems to keep getting smaller as we go, whereas the case starts getting more elaborate as we go. Um, definitely worth checking out uh, for the cool case and the cool setup and everything, though if you're going to buy it, I would highly suggest doing so through Amazon or somewhere so you can get a deep discount on it, because it is pretty expensive at full retail price. I want to say it's somewhere around like 100 bucks or something like that. Yeah, Amazon's cut that price quite a bit. Now, to throw you under the bus real fast, is there anything about Boba's dad? I, I remember in the Boba Fett kids books that Boba got a journal from his dad that was kind of like the do's and don'ts of being a bounty hunter, and Boba had that with him. Is there anything that kind of alludes to that, or or is that flat out? Couldn't tell you, because like I said, I haven't read this yet. It just came in, and it's it's sitting on my to-do list type of shelf here as the semester's winding down. Uh, well, I just I remember you know when I was reading those books, I thought that was interesting that that Django had left that journal for Boba that you know was basically like a list of what to do, uh, and and the other two were really good. I'm, I'm this is this is the one that I really wish I would have gotten. Um, you know the price tag being so high. Uh, but yeah, the fun, the the in-universe feel of it all is really cool. I like I like how you you said that it, it's going to detonate until you put your card in there. That was an interesting twist. I did not expect that. Like I'd seen the card and all that, and I was you know expecting the moving and, and all that stuff. But huh, interesting. I I just I'm so tickled by these. You know, I'm just like, what's next? You know, what are we going to get next? Imperial Knights? Like, you know, there's so many aspects that they could run with this. And and the bounty hunter side of it was really cool. Uh, you know, Boba Fett, interesting choice. The the fact that they got the little wanted poster, though, you know, I, I would love to have one of those just like, you know, pinned up. Maybe maybe they need to do some of those that are like blank where you can put your own face in it at Disney. I don't know. Disney, are you listening? <laughs> this is definitely one I want to get. Uh, I'm curious, though, if they're going to continue, like you said, to, to make the artifacts smaller. Because one of the things that bothered me is I, I've got a Jedi credit from the first one, the Path of the Jedi. And I lost it for a while. I found it, though. I, I'm, I'm happy I found it. But while I'd lost it for that four months, I was just so devastated because it was you can't find them anywhere. And yet you could go out, you can buy the book, but you can't buy the artifacts and the other fun stuff that comes with it by itself. And, you know, I, I think that they should offer that or, or at least, you know, maybe have like, a, oh, hey, you, you know, you lost this. Here's an option to buy just that one part back or have a full kit or whatever they want to do i just see i mean i get only offering the book but there is that other side of it like well what if you lost some of this stuff you know i don't want to go out and buy a whole you know book of sith again just to get that one little crystal you know why can't you just offer me that little plastic crystal again for 12 bucks or four bucks or two bucks or however much you're going to charge me if i'm really that desperate and have to have it I don't know. It's fun. It's cool. And I definitely think it's something that, that if you get into having that in-universe feel or if you like playing with lightsabers and blasters, this might be fun for you to have and, and pretend you're a bounty hunter. That moves along to the next category we don't really need to spend any time with. But just to note, of course, as with any year, there were paperback re-releases of stuff that had been previously released in hardback. Uh, this year saw things like Fate of the Jedi Apocalypse, uh, Old Republic Annihilation, X-Wing Mercy Kills, Scoundrels. We've pretty much given an episode to each of those in the past if you're interested in our thoughts on it. It was also a year where, just like in the previous year, Star Wars Insider kept churning out in most of its issues, though not all, in most of its issues kept churning out original short fiction. Um, we had a couple times where it was excerpts from things, and, you know, that's okay. Uh, in this case, though, 
This year, uh, if we're talking about newsstand release dates and such, uh, we had Speaking Silently from Insider 139. From 141, we had Eruption, which of course is also inside the hardback of Into the Void. We had Good Hunting in 142, Incognito in 143, Hondo Onaka's Not So Big Score in 144, Constant Spirit in 145, and most recently, I'm not even sure if it's on newsstands yet, I know it's showed up for subscribers, uh, the Cyrox Redemption in 146. And I gotta say, of these, we're still sort of in that whole throwaway story situation, but see, a throwaway story is somewhat okay when it's a short story, when it's not something you're paying 28 bucks for, like Razor's Edge. Um, in this case, speaking silently, it's a story about a, a, an individual from Lord and the whole idea of their like silent communication and such. I thought that was very interesting. Uh, eruption we've talked about previously a couple episodes ago, um, leading into the events of Into the Void. Good Hunting, just a quick Jaina and Alana story that's meant to sort of lead into Crucible, but not really. It could happen pretty much anywhere. Uh, Incognito taking place shortly before the events of uh, Kenobi, tying into some of the events again in that uh, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, biography written by Ryder Wyndham a while back. Uh, Hondo Onaka's not-so-big score. Kind of a quick, goofy little um, uh, caper story for Hondo Onaka, although adding in the fun twist of it explains where he got the jacket that he wears in The Clone Wars. Think about that. I asked Jason Fry about that story. He's the writer of that story. And one thing that, that he noted was he mentioned the whole, well, that's where he got the jacket from. And I hadn't even noticed that in reading the story. That's how it should be done. An entertaining story in and of itself that might include an element that connects to something else, even if it's something that it may take you a second read to realize. As opposed to something like Timothy Zahn's Buyer's Market, where the story barely existed. And the entire point was to heavily emphasize, see, 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 this is where the ad ad comes from. See, see, see for Nomad City. Um, this was done particularly well as far as giving him the jacket. He had Constant Spirit, which was a Leia story to tie into Razor's Edge, had just about as much impact as Razor's Edge, uh, meaning none, uh, although a decent little tale, a nice, uh, a tough decision for Leia there. And I actually have not yet read, because Insider just showed up in the mailbox, uh, the Cyrox Redemption, but I'm very stoked um, to get a chance to eventually read it, because it is a horror story. Uh, the Cyrox Rebellion marks the triumphant, at least I hope triumphant, uh, return here of Joe Schreiber of Death Troopers and Red Harvest uh, to Star Wars again. That was a, a nice little treat uh, with me having recently read the uh, advanced review copy of Mall Lockdown. This, of course, is something meant to lead into, I think, uh, the events of that novel. I I will say the novel doesn't really feel horror so much as it just feels dark. So I'm wondering if the Cyrox Redemption is going to feel horror or simply dark. But it should be uh, interesting. That's another of those books that I ran into a couple things like, hey, wait a second. Uh, Maul hasn't had his lightsaber for this entire chunk of the book because he doesn't have it with him at the moment. Now all of a sudden he just killed somebody with his lightsaber. Where exactly did the lightsaber come from? Oh, wait, that was an error kind of thing. Um, I sent off a few of those again to Delray. Hopefully, since that was a very, very early review copy, hopefully that's the kind of thing they'll be able to fix in the edits before the final publication, kind of like they did with things like Jaina's Age in Crucible when that was off. It's, uh, I guess, gratifying to be able to see some of the feedback being worked into the book, but also, you know, I 
like to see stories that don't have their own built-in continuity issues just due to an error or due to a mistake. So I would say that this year is a fairly solid selection of insider fiction, and I look forward to next year when hopefully they'll do another one of those Delray samplers at conventions that will include all of these short stories into one little booklet for those who haven't been picking up Insider. They've done that for two years running now. Uh, be nice to see them do it once again. See, and it's a shame because I missed the Darth Plagueis one uh, when they started doing that samplers. Because that, that, that was that's my point. I would like to see them, you know, if the EU, as we know it, is grinding to a halt, they could always go back and take these insider stories and do like you were saying with the sampler, but do it in the Tales format, you know. Tales from Insider. You know, you could have volume one through 35. Uh, you know, go back and collect some of these older stories. There's so many of the older, older stories and stuff that, you know, are probably just sitting on my shelf that I'm just like, oh, I don't even know which insider that was in, and I don't want to take the time to look it up. But if you're not going to have an influx of new stuff, why not do that? I mean, that, that makes that makes sense. I also like the fact that you're seeing him show up, like, with Eruption in, in the back of Dawn of the Jedi. You know, I, I think that they should do both. You know, I mean, you had some short stories that were showing up in the back of the books during the Bantam era, and yet they still managed to find their way into some of the Tales books. I think that that would be a great way to provide those stories that some of us have been buying Insider just for. And then you've got those people that are like, flat out, I'm done with Insider, I've been hosed by him in the past, and I'm not going to spend any more money, and yet now here's this great fiction coming out, and, and they can't get it, unless they slip it in the back of one of the books. It would be cool if they were to go back and make a paperback version that had these stories in it. Just, you know, maybe if you put 10 or so in it, I don't I don't care. I would just love to see it happen. Uh, it's nice that Insider is putting it out there still, but for me, you know, aside from the blaster section and a couple of the, ooh, that, that, that figure looks cool, that merchandise looks cool, for the most part, I don't really care about what they did to make Return of the Jedi. If I did, I'd go out and buy the making of Return of the Jedi book. You know, in Insider, that's just wasted on me. I want to know about what's coming next. I want to know about the in-universe stuff. I want to know about character backgrounds. I want ship layouts. I want some designs, things like that. That's what I care about. I I don't know. I mean, granted, I, I get that, you know, I'm not the, the fan they're catering to 100% of the time. That's fine. But at the same time, I miss the, uh, the uh, Star Wars Gamer magazine and what they were providing on their you know they had the game aspect but they also had all this tidbits of well here's a tech guy and they would give you all this information on the tech guy and then you'd have a mon cal over here and what he was doing and he was a slicer and i don't know that is missing for me i mean you yeah we get the rogues galleries every now and again but even that isn't quite the rogues gallery we had oh i'd say maybe about eight ten years ago i mean you know we'd get a rogues gallery back then it would have names and stuff like that give you a little more details about what's going on i don't know now it just it just feels more like a club magazine you know like i don't know it's it, it's some ways it seems a little more dummy down uh for me but at, at the others i'm happy the fact that we've got this this fiction in here but i i just i'm bummed that this is the only way you can get it now we'll say this though for insider uh recently i've actually found that the recent content has actually been a lot more in my tastes than a lot of the stuff, say, a year or two ago. Because now, for instance, in the newest issue, the one that's got uh, uh, Cyrox Redemption in it, you've got uh, an article called The Conversation, and it's about the decisions made in the early, early EU. Uh, in this case, the story conference with Alan Dean Foster about Splinter of the Mind's Eye, and it's a multi-part article in several issues. You've got uh, articles on 
how the Star Wars RPGs, one on West End Games, one on Wizards of the Coast, one on Fantasy Flight Games, uh, influence the expanded universe. Um, you've got a series of articles called Authors of the Expanded Universe, focusing on people like, in this issue, for instance, Chris Claremont, an early Marvel-era uh, Star Wars writer, and so on, and so on. They did one about uh, uh, the newspaper strips a couple of times. I find myself finding that uh, the quality level of the material, in my opinion, has grown by leaps and bounds just in about the last year to year and a half. Um, in fact, if there's anything that I find, it's I, I'm, I'm right there with you, and it's stuff like more making of Return of the Jedi stuff is kind of like, oh, okay, why am I seeing this again? Why should I care? Shouldn't I have seen this stuff before? But there's so much from the early days of EU stuff that is now being added into Insider, at least for this year, that I yeah. find it certainly well worth uh, the subscription price. Uh, speaking of which, though, speaking of subscription prices, then we also have, and I didn't mention this on the list, so this may be a shock uh, to Mark. I'd completely forgotten to put it on there. The Clone Wars magazine uh, in the U.S. Clone Wars magazine in my case, still showing up half the time beaten up. I'm still having to call them and say, hey, this issue never showed up at all. You need to send me another copy of it. So having all kinds of issues with these issues being delivered, um, either in good condition or at all. But I will say that they've kind of kept with the same level of quality, which is it's kiddie stuff, but at least it's not, you know, it, it doesn't seem like it's inconsistent. You, Kind of what you see is what you get. Same thing now as you got back in the early days of it, meaning that each issue tends to have two short comic stories in it by Rick Hoskins or Mike Barr or someone like that a lot of the times, uh, Robin Etherington. Um, and most recently, though, there is something that's driving me nuts in these issues. They have an in-universe uh, newspaper, kind of like Galaxy-Wide Newsnets in the old Adventure Journal, kind of like Holonet News. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, it's called The Coruscant Holonet. Of course... The first couple times we see it, it says holonet as two different words. The third time it says holonet all as one word with no explanation whatsoever. The first issue manages to misspell Tatooine. And all of them uh, date it as saying uh, the Coruscant holonet established such and such, right? Just like a, a normal newspaper would do. You know, established in 1892. Established whatever. This one says established. And granted, it is a Clone Wars era newspaper. And it says established. 48, I think it is, BBY. Really? So, <laughs> it, it was established um, a good 26 years prior to the Clone Wars, I think is what they're trying to say, but established 48 BBY. I'm reminded of the Encyclopedia Brown thing, where uh, he says, that, you know, uh, Stonewall, you know, here's a sword that belonged to Stonewall Jackson. Um, and you know it was him because there's an inscription, right? The day after uh, the the first battle of bull run he's given this sword and it says for standing like a stone wall at the first battle of bull run etc etc uh, or the thing where oh hey uh i'm an antique coin dealer i've got this coin that's got the face of julius caesar on it see there it's got the date on there such and such bc and there's that question how do you know that they're trying to pull a fast one and this has to be a fake because after the first Battle of Bull Run the next day, they never knew there would be a second Battle of Bull Run, so why would they call it the first? Because in the time of Julius Caesar, there was no time of Jesus Christ yet, so there was no uh, calendar based on his birth. Therefore, why would they be calling it B.C. if they don't even know that that's going to start with A.D. later on? Um, until there is a Battle of Yavin, how in the happy F-word 
because I can't say frack in this. This is that <laughs> insane. How in the happy other F word could you possibly have something labeled as 48 BBY almost half a century before the Battle of Yavin? Unless BBY is supposed to mean something different in this case, which completely just throws everything uh, into another grinder of, hey, let's have yet another type uh, of calendar in there. You would think that is something that an editor would have caught. You would think it's something that anyone who thinks logically would have looked at and said, wait a second, something doesn't quite feel right about this. But no, instead, we are left to, and maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's an intentional reference to Encyclopedia Brown, and they want the kids reading the magazine <laughs> to see it and go, hey, wait, I figured it out. And maybe there's like a secret contest that if you write into the magazine saying, what the F? <laughs> then they'll like send you a toy or something. Um, either way, kind of stupid, but at least things have continued on apace as far as the, the comics and such go, the goofy little throwaway comics. Um, I will say I was impressed by one earlier this year that told how Boba Fett got the helmet that he's wearing uh, at the end of the season, the previous season, where they were, um, he was working with Aura, or not Aura, saying working with uh, Asajj Ventress and such. Um, that was kind of neat, and uh, it does kind of make me scratch my head why there are some stories that were released in the UK that still haven't been republished in the US, because there was recently a story in the US, also from the UK, that references events in two previous stories which have only appeared in the UK, neither of which has been republished in the United States. Um, so there are still stories out there in the UK for this that haven't shown up here. Hopefully at some point they'll catch up on those, but I'm afraid at this point the only way to see those may be through um, buying from outside of the country or, you know, fan scans online at this point. So can't really recommend Clone Wars magazine, um, but it is still out there even though the show is over with, and it is still pretty much just keeping up, you know, the standard they set with the early ones. Um, for better or worse. Yeah, you have to wonder how long they're going to continue that magazine before they finally just pull its plug. I mean, it's nice that they are providing you comics and stuff, but again, it gets me back to that, where will they collect it elsewhere? Because, yeah, I, I want to see a collection of these things, you know, especially if they're relevant comics. The dating thing, though, I think I'd be okay with that if they put that in parentheses. You know, like, like that's only supposed to be for you, the reader, who is apparently out of universe. Like, yeah, when you slip it in trying to make it seem like an in-universe thing, that's, that's a big misnomer there. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> I love it. That's classic. That brings us to the non-canonical stuff. And I got to be honest here, only one of these I've checked out. Uh, the big ones for this year, uh, you have a gentleman by the name of Jeffrey Brown, who had done Darth Vader and Son, who has now put out two more this year, uh, Vader's Little Princess and Jedi Academy. I haven't personally checked out either of these. Uh, they're kind of cutesy, uh, they're more kid-directed, but certainly they've been getting rave reviews for those who are really into that type of book, so definitely yeah. check those out if you get the opportunity. They're published by Scholastic, if that gives you a sense of sort of the, uh, the approach they may be taken with it and such. Um, I may at some point pick up Jedi Academy just because it actually has a story. Um, yeah, that's the one my son has. We bought him that. And I would say it's it's kind of like those uh, Roderick Rules, uh, those type of books, the Big Nate and things. Uh, my son, he he got that one and he absolutely loved it. And, and yes, the story is there. It, it is got drawings and stuff all throughout it. So it, it's equal parts, you know, pictures and words. But for the age group, my son's 10. It's right up his alley. He really got a kick out of it. Uh, and my daughter, though, she's 11, and 
had zero interest in Vader's little princess. So I, I don't know why that is like if it was the marketing or, or just, she just was just like, yeah, I'm ready for bigger books. But yeah, my son totally dug the, the uh, Jedi Academy one. We never did get the uh, first one, the Vader and son though. Cause when I saw him, I, I thought like the, uh, the Larson's far, far side type feel to it, you know, like, okay, what is this? Uh, but that Jedi Academy one, though, its story is set enough that it's kind of almost got a Harry Potter feel, tongue-in-cheek to it. Uh, so, yeah, he got a kick out of it. He'd come and, Dad, Dad, look at this picture, look at this picture, and, and look what the, it's like Darth Maul! And, yeah, so, you know, for a 10-year-old, it's right up there in their play zone. Nice. I'm waiting for, like, a crossover between Darth Vader and son and Vader's little princess. You know, like, maybe he's in the process of doing the potty training or something, you know? If you will not drop a turd, then perhaps she will... Uh, or something like that. Um, the other big non-canonical uh, one, but also fiction one, though, this year, we had William Shakespeare's Star Wars, Verily, A New Hope. Um, I really enjoyed that one. Again, I mentioned this earlier, you know, if you're into things, uh, Shakespeare, you'll probably like it, but if you're not, then you won't. It just kind of depends on your literary taste. I will say that sometimes it was a little heavy-handed when it came to some of the, the references of lines that are meant to echo lines in actual Shakespeare. But the style of it works pretty well, and one thing I really like about it is that, for once, you get the thoughts, so to speak, of R2-D2. Um, he's one of sort of the bumbling uh, characters, him and C-3PO, but they act almost like a Greek chorus a lot of times, talking about what's happening and commenting upon the actions and choices of Luke and the others. So, definitely want to check out, if only if you're an R2-D2 fan, and you <laughs> want to see more of his thoughts, or whatever you want to call it, during the course of A New Hope. Yeah, when I grabbed that down at Barnes & Nobles, that was one of the first things that leapt out to me. And I want to say, wasn't the radio editions or something like that the, another one where, where R2 got some actual background or there was like some drafts or something like that? I remember before seeing something like that where they actually were translating what the beeps and whistles were so well, you had an idea what 3PO's conversation was. Well, the original Star Wars drafts did have C3, or did have a R2-D2 talking um, in fact, you can see that if you pick up The Star Wars, which is one of the comics that we'll talk about in our next episode, pick up The Star Wars based on the 1974, I think it was, uh, a synopsis of Lucas's film before it became the film that we know it today. Um, R2-D2 does talk in that. Um, so that may be the thing that's, that you're thinking of, that very, very, very early draft. It's, it's weird because they call it a draft. But it's not even a fully fleshed out draft as opposed to the later ones. If, if you're interested in summaries of those early Star Wars synopses, uh, early Star Wars drafts and such that Lucas did before it eventually became what we know of as Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, check out the Star Wars Timeline Gold. If you go to the appendices file, the third one, the one that ends in an X, scroll down. I've got an entire section where I do summaries and like little separate timelines for those earlier drafts of A New Hope. Uh, that are in there. Uh, lastly, last category, nonfiction. I got to tell you, I didn't pick up either of these. I'm not a big Star Wars nonfiction book guy, to be honest with you. Um, I've got the cinema of George Lucas, but it was because it was a gift. Uh, I've got a couple different versions of George Lucas, the creative impulse, but only because one of them came with the 1992 letterboxed first time it was ever in widescreen VHS release of the classic trilogy, and the other one, the full-sized one, is in the 1993 uh, Definitive Collection Laserdisc set. I just don't tend to seek out these types of books, really. Um, but of the ones that are out there new for this year, we have The Making of Return of the Jedi, of course, the follow-up to Making of Empire Strikes Back, and Making of Star Wars. 
and Star Wars concept, dealing with concept art and the like, um, among some other uh, smaller publications and such. I would say, though, that I am impressed with the making of books. They've put out the new ebook versions, which on some platforms, not all platforms, so make sure you're buying it on a platform that can do this, like, say, the iBooks one, just like what happened with Jedi Path. Um, they have all kinds of new material like blooper reel and, and that sort of thing built into the book. So not only are you getting the book itself, if you buy the digital version, you're getting a bunch of bonus digital content to go with. I thought that was um, that was certainly something that would possibly prompt some people to finally make the jump if they never tried ebooks before to actually start doing that as opposed to buying the large hardcover books, which saves you space and gets you some extra content. Yeah, that's definitely the way I would do it. I mean. I'm I'm with you in this one. I don't get it because for me, I'm not into smokescreen. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to kid myself that there was no vision that, you know, they're just going to pump this up. Like there was this plan all along. There was a man, a great genius. He was so legendary. They made him a god, a god among fandom. Yeah, I, I don't like the smokescreen. I mean, I, I just feel like, you know, Lucas got really lucky. He had a, a great group of individuals that helped him make something that was epic. But when we go back like this, I, I feel like it makes fandom just look at him as a, he's just a total god. Like, oh, his vision was just so secure. Everything is all going according to his plan. And, you know, from what my fandom has shown me, George likes to make things up today just as much as he had plans yesteryear. And so, you know, going back, like, I, I don't trust these 100%. Like, sometimes I think they're just telling you what they want to tell you because it makes for a good story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are things to really pick up for sort of the individual tidbits. That's why I like stuff like the sounds of Star Wars. Probably not much in the way of of trying to do some revisionist history or anything like that, but cool new information. In that case, media clips, because Sounds of Star Wars had the little thing where you can change the sound clip number and play the sound as you read the book, um, as they talk about the making of each of the individual sounds of the saga. So it's been a pretty decent uh, year as far as the number of releases go. Uh, not really the highest point in terms of the quality of all the new releases, but decent stuff. Uh, not a bad year by any means, uh, just kind of a year that sort of uh, we had some things that really knocked it out of the park, like Kenobi, some stuff that uh, were quite good, like uh, Into the Void. We've also got some stuff that was you know, the striving for mediocrity, as I've said, uh, stuff like Razor's Edge. So it uh, should be an interesting thing when we then turn to comics next time around, because comics tend to come faster than novels, and we'll probably have a bit more of a, a breadth and scope of different types of Star Wars story, uh, stories and lines of Star Wars stories that we can talk about. That, of course, brings us to our contest for this time in celebration of our 100th episode. A couple episodes ago, we are giving away Star Wars books and other books and whatnot here uh, with a different contest coming each week. We have already done a giveaway a short time ago of Mercy Kill. We've also given away a signed copy of uh, one of my books, Greater Good. This time, we're going to give away a hardback of Crucible by Troy Denning. That is the last Big story of the big three or so were told by Del Rey. In this case, if you want to enter the contest, as before, very simple. Send us an email at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Make sure that you make the subject line crucible. And inside the body of the email, tell us your mailing address in case you win. And yes, we do need your entire mailing address. If you simply give us a city and state, 
that's going to invalidate that entry. Make sure you give us your actual mailing address so that if you win, we can just email you, say, hey, you won, and already have that package packed up, ready to go, and shipped out to you, possibly as soon as we're already emailing you for the thing. Make sure that it is the, the uh, mailing address we could use to send it if you win. Um, in this case, you want to make sure that your entry for this giveaway is into us by Friday, January 10th of 2014. Uh, the last one was due by the third and so on and so on. We're just trying to make sure that each week uh, we give you a decent amount of time to enter those respective contests there. That's right. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we highly encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms. Or just type in Stars Beyond the Films in the search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It is the best way to interact with us there on Facebook. It's our home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. And of course, if you want to check out, uh, as the lead-up begins, if you want to check out... The pages for Rebels Roundtable, our upcoming podcast about Star Wars Rebels that basically combines Star Wars Beyond the Films team and Public Forces Radio Network's team into one bigger podcast. You can already check that out at Facebook.com slash Rebels Roundtable or on Twitter at Rebels Round. You can also check out the Star Wars Timeline Gold on Facebook uh, as you can any of my stuff for writing and whatnot. And if you're interested... In helping out my wife and I, we have our Amazon.com store of It's Amazon.com slash shops slash Lil Joe Collectibles, L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all as one word. And if you're just wanting to donate something to help out with the crazy, insane medical bill situation, which I recently posted an update about, things are starting to finally get better. Um, you can find that update on the Beyond the Films Facebook page. Uh, then you can still do the donations and such. Uh, you can contact me or do an actual donation with the email address uh, Nathan at StarWarsFanWorks.com, which uh, is what we've been accepting donations through PayPal with at this point. And lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention your Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash StarWarsReport, you get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without being stuck with a book that you do not like because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months. There's not a question asked. In this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you and don't quote us the odds that the rest of empire and rebellion will actually be something other than fluff or that the odds that the eu is going to continue past crucible let's hope and pray